Okay, good. Okay, as far as Apple Dumpling Gang and Hogan's Heroes goes, um, now that I understand that you don't old no understand old TV, that the the uh, illustration I was going to use from Leave It to Beaver, I'm cutting that out right now. <laughs> so, um, I I grew up on reruns of Hogan's Heroes, and Apple Dumpling Gang is actually a a fun family movie that we've uh, quoted many times in our family, but. Uh, Anyway, sorry for talking over your head on all that. Uh, anyway, I hope you have an outline uh, again this evening. It helped to direct our thoughts and keep us on the same page. But before we turn uh, to the message tonight, um, from Maureen's heart and my heart, thank you very much for being so kind to us and receptive of us in your church family. As I've, I've said from the the very first moments of Sunday school on Sunday morning and through these few days we've been with you, we just feel a very kindred spirit. I think our church would fit right into your church very nicely. Uh, I've fallen in love with your pastor and his wife and Will and his wife, and, and uh, it's been really a great privilege to be here. And thank you for your graciousness in coming back uh, night after night. Um, uh, as you know, we spent the first... Um, few sessions together, Sunday morning and then Sunday night and Monday night, uh, looking at marriage and God's design for that, the high calling of marriage. And then last night we transitioned to the issue of parenting. We looked at um, something very important in regards to parenting younger children, this whole issue of God's design and purposes for discipline. Um, trust that that is a help to you. Uh, tonight in our final time together, the topic is still parenting, but now we're going to shift to the older uh, years, um, the teen years and the early 20s. And um, uh, before we actually get into the material, I just want to say that um, this particular message is just born out of uh, my own burden for the families that I love very much in my own sphere of influence back in my home church. And... Um, born out of some experiences uh, raising six children now that are th through the, the uh, teen years. As I say, our youngest is going to be 22 uh, next month. But I, especially in recent years, have a deep burden for the heartfelt engagement of mom and dads with their older kids. Um, I, my theology, I think, is relatively solid in understanding the sovereignty of God, that he rules and reigns over his world, and everything even that's been going on in the last couple of years, it's just where it seems like the Romans won, spirals going down, and things are getting worse in terms of spiritual temperature and morality and immorality and so on. That God's in control of that. He's working his plan. And so I rest in that. As, as it's been said, things are not falling apart. They're falling into place because God's in charge of it all. 
And so, uh, as Spurgeon would say, the sovereignty of God makes for a soft pillow uh, for his children. And I fully embrace all that. At the same time, uh, as much as God is sovereign, we are responsible, right? Um, we've got those conflicting, or not conflicting, those complementary truths. And in regards to parenting, even though I know God is in control of everything, including my family and your family, he has called us to active involvement in the process of leading our children to faith in Christ and building them up in their faith in Christ as long as we have influence. And specifically as we have influence while they're still under our roof. Um, I'm grateful that I have relationships with my older kids. I still have influence, but truth is I don't have as much daily, day in and day out influence as I once had when they lived under my roof. Um, so the message I have this evening is specifically directed at, I trust, encouraging you and motivating you to be very actively involved with your older kids and some of you I'm looking out there probably aren't yet in that season but those of us have that have been in that season will tell you it's going to come and go real fast so you say well I don't even have teenagers well plug this away because right now a lot of what I'm going to say can begin now and it will certainly be up on your doorstep here very quickly before you you blink an eye and for some of you that are now in that uh, season of life. I trust it's an encouragement. And for us grandparent types, again, like last night, we can come alongside and I trust be a help and encouragement and a support to you parents in this particular season. So bear with me. I'm going to be um, somewhat redundant. I'm just going to admit it right up front. I'm going to say a lot of the same things over and over tonight um, because I think they're very important to be heard specifically on engagement with our, with our older kids. So, um, Let's humble our hearts before the throne of grace and ask for his help. Heavenly Father, we're only born and born again because of you. Plain and simple, we wouldn't be alive, we wouldn't be spiritually alive if you weren't an, an amazing, gracious, and loving God. So thank you, Lord, that you saved us and we're your own and we're your children. And we want to thank you again tonight for the privilege of, of family uh, for the amazing joy it is to be a mom and a dad. Um, and we thank you for that gift and all the happinesses and blessings that it brings. But Lord, it is also to us a daunting calling, uh, especially the, 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 the time and place we live now in the world as it spirals down and decay. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult world to uh, walk with you. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as parents um, specifically in regard to being engaged with our, our children into their older years before they leave the nest to be actively involved in their lives. I pray that you would inspire, refresh, affirm. Some parents just simply need to be affirmed here. Uh, some need to be perhaps convicted uh, to be more engaged. Whatever the need is, I pray your Holy Spirit would minister to it. And Lord, we want to honor you. We want you to be pleased tonight with what is said and what we hear and how we apply. Uh, so we commit this, this next hour to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as you see tonight, my title is Parenting in the Red Zone. And 
here's what I mean by that title. If you're a Packers fan, you don't need much explanation. But uh, here's what I mean by my title. The red zone is a term that is used in the game of football. A football field is 100 yards long, and the red zone is the last 20 yards of the field before the end zone. The red zone is the section of the football field just before a team hopefully scores a touchdown. And scoring touchdowns is the goal of the game. You don't get any points for reaching the red zone. A team must get the ball into the end zone. In football, coaches commonly talk about the vital importance of playing good offense in the red zone because a team can be very good at moving the ball all the way down the field, but when they get within the 20-yard line, their offense tends to sputter and collapse. And instead of scoring a touchdown, which is six points, they have to settle for a field goal, three points, or even worse, they turn the ball over to their opponent by either fumbling or throwing an interception. And all of their hard work of marching down the field is all for naught. It is very discouraging to move the, the ball down the field, say, from your own 10-yard line, 70 yards, and not come up with any points because of lack of solid execution and offense in the red zone. So this evening, I'm likening parenting of teenagers and even into their 20s to playing a football game in the red zone. Parenting in the red zone refers to parenting older children in the season of life prior to leaving home. And here is my overarching proposition this evening. Your job as a parent is not finished when your child reaches the age of 13 or 18 or even 21, especially if they're still living under your roof. You must stay fully engaged with your kids all the way in to the end zone. The parenting goal is to score a touchdown, not to settle for a field goal and certainly not to fumble the parenting ball during what is a very, very crucial season in the life of our kids. And again, I've seen this. I've been personally burdened as I see parents who work a really hard in the young years with their kids and they get them into the high school years and the kids seemingly are doing pretty well. They look pretty good on the outside. And they're certainly self-contained. You don't have to tie their shoes and wipe their nose and do other things to help them. They're, they're pretty self-sufficient. And so parents just sit back and just let them go. Let them do life. And they're not engaged. And I've seen the bad fruit often of what comes from that, what I would call lackadaisical, aloof parenting style. I don't think it's honoring to God, and it's certainly not helpful to our young people. Successful football coaches invest a lot of attention and hard work in helping their teams play well in the red zone because it usually means the difference between winning and losing games. Similarly, wise, godly parents invest a lot of time and heart and blood, sweat, and tears in their teenagers because it is such a crucial season of life as they begin to truly own their faith and become independent thinkers 
and learn how to live for the Lord and apply his word in an adult world that is fallen and full of temptation and in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The red zone is a season of time to be fully, purposefully, intentionally engaged with your kids. They need you now more than ever. Not to be treated like toddlers, but to be treated like like young adults. They must be shepherded, but not suffocated. Therefore, the red zone is no time for parents to have a midlife crisis or to check out or to try to find themselves. In the red zone, your kids need you to live and act like mature adults, not like fellow teenagers. Your kids need a godly, mature, wise parent to shepherd them. And we need to be able to say to our children what Paul said to the Philippians in chapter 3 of Philippians. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul elsewhere, other places said, follow me as I follow Christ. We should be able to be telling that to our children. And we recall that Paul was not perfect. He was a sinner, but he had a life of devotion to Christ whereby he could tell those that were looking at him, follow me as I follow Christ. And he said that in the utter humility. He knew he was the chief of sinners, as we've talked about in recent messages, but yet he still had a devotion to Christ, a maturity worthy of following. And as moms and dads in our later years and as our kids get older, that's what we need to be. I find some... Some parents are just so trying to be so um, with it and so relevant and so teenager-like. And I go, I don't think our kids need us to be teenagers. I think our kids need us to be wise adults. Yes, to relate to them, to get down on their level, to enter into their worlds. And I'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But we don't have to be teeny bopper parents. We need to be wise, godly, engaged, loving, shepherd-minded parents to our teenagers. So in the time that we have uh, this evening, I just want to offer some, what I would call practical, biblical counsel. I'll call them strategies that I trust will encourage and equip you to parent well in the red zone. And I just want to be clear that my purpose tonight is not to try and answer a myriad of specific questions you will face in parenting your kids in the red zone. Uh, For example, I can't and I won't tell you when your child is ready for a driver's license or to own their own car or to get a job outside the home or what job is okay or when they should have their own computer or what movie or music choices they're allowed to make or what their curfew should be or when they're ready to start dating or a plethora of other issues and decisions you will face as your kids get older as they get into that 12, 13, 14 and above age bracket. These are issues you must decide for your 
family. My, my efforts tonight are not to delve into the specifics for you. Parents are called upon by God to seek his wisdom in shepherding each individual child in their ever-changing seasons of life. And we recognize that no two children are identical. They each have a uh, unique personality, strengths and weaknesses, and maturity levels. One size does not fit all when it comes to parenting. I wish it was. I had six kids. I wish they were all cookie cutters. They were not. They were all unique individuals. And there were some similarities in parenting, but there were some things that we just did different at different times with different ones of them. And we cried out to God for wisdom in that. And just for the record, we didn't always get it right. But that's why we have a Savior. To forgive us and pick up and try to adjust and do better the next time. So, you see that fully engaged parents in the red zone, you, to be that, you cannot be lackadaisical. You can't be aloof to be a faithful parent of teenagers. Now, one more comment. The red zone is, uh, I think, a wonderful season of life. I remember uh, when we were first being, becoming parents and we had the little ones and stuff, there was this kind of, this is back, you know, 30-something years ago, there was this thing that just bugged the tar out of me. It's like people say, well, well just enjoy the little ones, but when they, when they become teenagers... It's terrible. Enjoy the toddler years. And boy, when they're 10 or 12, it's, but when they're teenagers, you know, find a barrel, put the kid in the barrel, feed him through the knot hole. You know, it's like, what? I hated that. And we just fought against that. I said, I don't think that's good philosophy. As a matter of fact, I think it stinks. And I can say now on the other end, after raising six teenagers, teenagers are a blast. So don't buy into that. It doesn't have to be. Now, is there challenges? Yes. Where there are some real challenges? Oh, yeah. Where there's some awkward seasons? Mm-hmm. Where there's some failures? You bet. But was it a fun season? Oh, yeah. I think it's a wonderful season of life. I absolutely love having a house full of teenagers. I could even tear up thinking about it. Like, I wish we could go back and have them move in with minus the food bill. I mean, it would be great to have them. So don't get me wrong as we go through all this. It is a mammoth blessing to have older kids. And growing in friendship, it was just a sweet season. You have, um, you have deeper conversations, heavy things. Sometimes you don't agree. It's, they develop in their sense of humor. You goof off together in a different way, and it's really, it's really quite neat. But again, it's not easy. The red zone is no time to shift into neutral or auto, autopilot. We must be fully engaged as parents. Okay, let's dive in. Six strategies. Strategy number one, evangelize and disciple your teenager continually. Evangelize and disciple them continual. Biblical parenting is a synonym for evangelism and discipleship. And we should never stop actively sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching the Bible to our kids as long as they're under our roof. I find that a lot of aggressive and active 
parents in the younger years doing family devotions and such somehow let off the throttle when the kids get older. It gets difficult when they get older. They get jobs or they're active in sports or in clubs and music lessons and what have you. It's a difficult thing, but don't let off the throttle in the later years. It may be less often that you can do it, but don't give up. Be actively involved. I call the red zone the golden years of parenting. You have the opportunity to help your older kids to further internalize the truth of God's word and help them prepare for a fruitful, Christ-centered life as an adult who lives for the glory of God in a fallen world. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 29 is a great parenting text. Paul wrote, We proclaim him, speaking of Christ, admonishing in every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. What got Paul out of bed every morning was this goal of bringing people to Christ and helping them to grow into maturity in Christ. And he did this according to the power of God. What a great parenting text for us. We must never lose sight of the ultimate goal of parenting, which is to lead our children to authentic, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and growth and sanctification. What our kids need most is genuine salvation. They need to be reconciled to God and rescued from hell. But we know that salvation is much more than that. Being born again and embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior includes being given a new nature, a new heart that loves God and his righteousness and is empowered to live for him. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in our lives whereby God begins to empower us and to govern us internally. God is working in us internally. And that is what every biblically directed parent aims for in parenting their children. We want them to be governed internally by God, not externally by us. This is so important. We are prayerfully, actively working with God in cooperation with God that our children might learn to be internally motivated and driven priorities in their hearts to live for God. Not not our convictions, not what mom and dad think, but what they think and believe. We want them to truly own their faith. I said to my kids many times as I was growing up, if dad is an apostate, if I jettison the faith, if I leave your mother for for some other woman, if I abandon, I want you to own your faith. Because it's yours. Because the Bible's the truth no matter how I live. Now, God forbid I'm not going to do that. I have no plans, of course, to do that. But I want you to own your faith. You're not on my coattails. God has no grandchildren. I want you to walk with Christ. I want you to cherish Jesus. I want the word of God to be your word and and your convictions, which may differ a little bit from mine, which we'll get to in just a moment. We want them to be governed internally. 
We want them to own and apply their own faith in daily living. To cultivate a love for God's word as, as the supreme reality and joy of their lives. Why is that? Well, obviously, that is what will matter most the day they leave our nest. Right? What's going to matter most the day your child walks out of your home to move out, whether to be married or to just move into their next season of life as a single adult, what's going to matter most? What's going to matter most is that they own Jesus and Jesus owns them. And it's their faith, not yours. Their, your surveillance, your observation, your oversight, a large amount of your influence is going to be done. They need to walk with Jesus. One-on-one -on -one with him. So we want to start working on that when they're 12, 13, 14 and older. The power of my convictions are going to be not enough <laughs> to hold them in this stormy world. They need to know God for themselves. So we want them to be motivated and empowered to live for Jesus internally, not externally by us. So never, ever stop working at reaching their heart with the gospel and the truth of scripture. Talk openly with them about these things. Just be transparent with them. Let them even hear you pray for them this way. That their hearts would cherish Christ. That they grow in affection for the amazing truth of the gospel that has saved them. This multifaceted gospel truth. It would be dear to them, not just to you. I want to give you a caution here in this juncture. And it could be easily misunderstood, but I want to give you this caution. Don't assume that your children are saved just because they've asked Jesus into their hearts at some point in the past. Don't make that assumption. There's a quote that you're, uh, you have there on the, the, your staple page of your outline by William Farley uh, in his book, Gospel Power Parenting. I think he offers this excellent counsel to us. He writes, a child's testimony that he has accepted Jesus or asked Jesus into his heart means very little. That is because God initiates new birth. Of course, the child is responsible to respond to God with faith and repentance. But a child can go through these steps and not have saving faith and repentance that point to new birth. That is why it is foolish for parents to presume upon new birth. The bottom line is this. New birth is known by its fruits, not by a decision. The most important fruit is a hunger for God himself. Effective parents assume this and patiently wait for sustained fruit before they render a verdict, end quote. I say this is a dicey thing because there's a balance here, is there not? I, our, most of our children, not all of them, but most of our children made professions of faith when they were in their single digits when they were younger. 
And of course, of course, when a child makes a prophetic, you, you make a big deal about it. I mean, boy, that's really sweet. They're at their age level. They're acknowledging it. The last thing you do, well, hey, we'll believe it when you turn 21. I mean, you're not going to do that to a child, right? Don't misunderstand me. But in our hearts, as we rejoice with them, we made a big deal about it, and we affirmed it. In our hearts, we're going, okay, we need to keep working with them, and we're going to keep sharing the gospel with them, and we're going to kind of build this because we're not sure what the reality is or not. I don't want to be against God by God forbid that he's caused my five-year-old to be born again. But I don't assume it's the reality. And I think some parents, they asked Jesus in their heart when they were five and six, and now when they're 16, and they're off doing whatever. But by golly, they asked, I mean, I remember. I was in the living room, and they said, Jesus, come into my heart. I think it's a danger. Um, may the Lord lead you in wrestling with that as he will. But my point is, possessing an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ is the singular most important issue in life. If our kids leave home embracing and owning their own faith, all will be ultimately well. And once we believe that they are saved, we continue to intentionally, purposely disciple them in the word of God in order that they might think and behave and feel biblically in all areas of life, all for the glory of God. And of course, there are areas of discipleship that are, that are many. And it's outside the scope of my message tonight to address any of these. But you must identify key topics of discipleship and then develop a plan for addressing those in their lives. Um, I'll just list some important areas but not develop any of them. First of all, as my kids were getting older, I had what was called the Ball Vent Bible Institute. And I just developed reading through good books. And I wanted them to grow in their theology. Again, not trying to make it uh, way up there, high bar stuff. But I want them to understand good doctrine, to grow in that, because their faith is going to be grown by good truth. I, I want to help them develop spiritual disciplines to exercise the means of grace. I want to help them to know how to have a quiet time, how to read the word and pray, and how important it is to have real good fellowship and to choose good companions that actually feed their faith and don't take them down a rat hole. We talked about character development. We, we, we talked much about protecting their moral purity, God's design for moral purity and why that's such a good thing. We talked about preparing for marriage when they were just you know, 13, 14, we're talking about how to choose a mate. And more importantly, more importantly, how to be a good mate. How to be a good husband, be a good wife. Talk about financial stewardship because money problems take people down bad paths. Um, developing a hard, good biblical work ethic. Um, talk about career choice and preparation, what that would look like and for them. So there's lots of areas to be working with our kids to help them grow. Okay, so strategy number one is to evangelize and disciple them uh, continually. Number two, engage them regularly. Engage them regularly. For sure, the nature of our relationships with our older children changes as they come into the teen and later teen years and into their 20s. But we are still their parents. 
and they need us in their lives, whether or not they realize it. And this is going to differ from different kids. We had six. Some of them fully embrace us. It's pretty sweet. Mom and Dad, I, I know I still need you in my life. Others were a little more independent. Like, I got this. You know? But regardless of their bent, they need us. And that's not an arrogant thing to say. It's God's design. God didn't say, turn off parenting at age 13. They're ours. Stewardship from God. To be cared for. And we need to regularly engage with them. We need to pursue them as much as ever. We need to cultivate a relationship with them and love them. And listen. Listen to them. And pray for them. And counsel them in a winsome way. I'm talking about treating and shepherding them as young adults. Not suffocating them. We need to enter into their worlds and into their interests. And to work to build a healthy, well-rounded relationship that is both serious and light-hearted. We should work together and play together and serve together. And we should start doing this when they're very little. Don't wait until your kids are 16 to begin engaging with them. So you ones with little, with little kids right now, um, hey, right now all of this starts when they're toddlers. Just being engaged with them. If you're not doing that early on, it's hard to expect them when they get into the teen years and their world is expanding and their peers are more and all the, the world's opening up. It's hard to expect them to be warmly engaging with you if you haven't been doing that when they're younger. Um, it's kind of the spirit. Here's my, my I'm going to date myself with another thing. Anybody heard Cats in the Cradle, that song? Whew. All right. Um, I, sometimes I date myself with my illustrations, obviously. But there's an old song, Cats in the Cradle. And basically the theme of the song is this dad looks back and he didn't spend time with his son. And then the time goes on and the son grows up. And, and now the dad says, I've got time and I want to spend time with my son. The son says, hey, no, you didn't do spend time with back then. I don't have time for you now. Thanks for the call, dad. Uh, but I got other things to do. There's a lot of parents that are facing that reality. They really didn't sacrifice joyfully their time with their little ones and their teenagers and the kids get older and it's like they don't they're polite perhaps but they don't really want to hang out they want to be together so start young so engage them regularly i put there on your outline debrief often debrief with them often by that i mean we need to stay up to date with them as we let out rope and they are stretching their wings in the world, we need to be up to date. We need to initiate constant, regular, below-the-surface conversation with our older kids. And, and why is that? Why is it dangerous? Why is it dangerous for us to let days and weeks and sometimes even months go between personal, below-the-surface conversations with them well 
Hebrews chapter 3, if you have access to your Bible on your phone or printed page, or turn to Hebrews chapter 3 quickly, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 3 answers that question for us. Why is it dangerous to not be regularly, actively engaged below the surface level with our kids? Hebrews 3, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What's going on in the text here? Writing to believers, hey, hey, be encouraging one another regularly, day by day, not year by year, but day by day, so that no one's heart will become hardened by what? By the deceitfulness of sin. We're all prone to a world of temptation to fall to a myriad of temptations of, of belief and action. And we're supposed to be protecting each other from caving in and having an unbelieving heart. This passage gives us a sobering and motivating reason to constantly engage with our older kids. And the reason comes in the form of a warning against turning away from God. And please notice that the turning away refers to a turning away of the heart. The heart, you catch that? Understand this. This is a truism of life. The heart always turns away before the eyes, the mouth, the ears, and the feet, and the hands turn away. Before we have sins of action, we have sins of heart. What's going on below the surface in the heart? So we're always going after heart. I want to know what your thoughts, inner thoughts are. Before a person goes into a life of immorality, they've got stuff going on below the surface in their mind and heart. Day by day, encouraging, motivating, reminding, teaching, affirming, so that you would protect them from falling to the deceitfulness of sin. That's what we're doing, not only with children. By the way, we should be doing that as adults. But certainly with our children. This world they're living in, hello. I mean, they're getting bombarded by messages of the deceitfulness of sin. How much more now than ever do they need us appropriately, winsomely, being engaged with them so that they will not fall to the deceitfulness of sin? Paul Tripp writes, There are many teens living in Christian homes who attend worship services, participate in family devotions, and are active in their church's youth group, but whose hearts have long since turned away from the living God. When those teenagers go off to college and fall away from the faith, something new and radical isn't taking place. It is the fruit of a turning away from God that took place in their hearts months and maybe even years before. End quote. Wow. 
see this often. It's a sad reality, right? Kids who appeared fine on the surface. They were doing life autopilot. Parents were in the gauge. They were good church kids. Knew the right answers, said the right answers. They go off, they move out, whether it's to college or they just move out on their own, and soon they have jettisoned the faith. Was that an event? Was that an event or was that a process? Paul Tripp, and I would agree, would contend it was a process. Started way back, way back earlier, when they were still in our nest. But maybe we were too busy to actively engage with them and get down below the surface, ask them how they're doing, encourage them, relate to them, their struggle, having questions, being receptive, welcoming. I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 3, it's not about confrontation, it's about prevention. I like this. It's not about confrontation, it's about prevention. We want to prevent our children from falling away from the living God. So don't just engage your children when they're doing something wrong. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem for some of us as parents. I, I personally wrestled with this. I, to my chagrin, I was often more engaged when I needed to correct something that was just overt rather than doing what I've been explaining for the last five minutes. Don't just be engaged with your kids when they're doing something bad. Be engaged with them all the time. The passage does not urge us to have daily contact because we have caught them in sin and we must confront them, not at all. We are commanded to encourage one another day after day because sin is so deceitful and all of us, including our sons and daughters, are susceptible to falling away from God. If we're truly humble, we should recognize this. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, to him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Let us not be arrogant. Oh, I've been a Christian for decades. I'm, in, I'm, I'm impervious to falling to sin or falling away from the living God and losing my love for Jesus. Let him who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. And let us love one another to take heed for each other. This engagement with them that I'm talking about, friends, does not have to be negative. It shouldn't be negative. Debriefing, as I call it, is not a time of harsh interrogation. These times can and should be informal, casual, loving, encouraging times of discussing how their day went. Not sitting them under a spotlight in a dark room and pummeling them with a zillion questions. Debriefing can be a normal, enjoyable part of life around the dinner table, just hanging out in the living room, or a brief chat when they get home from school or work. These conversations won't always happen by accident. There are times you must be intentional. What I put here in my notes, politely aggressive. 
Again, Paul Tripp writes, a parent who has his hope in the gospel will pursue his teenagers and will not stop, stop until they leave the home. We won't wait for them to come to us for help. We won't argue with them as to whether or not or whether we are needed or not. The call of the word is clear. With hearts filled with gospel hope, we will question and probe and listen and consider and plead and encourage and admonish and warn and instruct and pray. We will awake every day with a sense of mission, knowing that God has given us a high calling. We are walls of protection that God has lovingly placed around our teenager. We are eyes that he has given that they might see. So we converse and converse and converse, end quote. So we're talking about engagement. We're talking about doing it, debriefing often. Put on your outline there. Don't overreact. This is just a practical piece of advice. I've learned this from a little bit of experience. Don't overreact to your kids. One of the key things that you want to cultivate in the red zone is open, honest, transparent communication with your son or daughter. Overreaction to what they say is a sure way to shut down your kids and hinder them from sharing their hearts freely. Therefore, just some brotherly advice here, discipline yourself to hold your tongue if they make strong or startling statements that, not, that are not in accord with your theology or your philosophy of life or your personal convictions. And by the way, some teenagers are particularly good at this. They, almost like they study how to push the parental buttons. For example, if they blurt out that they think covering their face with tattoos and having a purple and pink spiked hair dude would be awesome, don't immediately go into convulsions and rattle off a hundred reasons why you believe such things are of the devil and that no biblically clear-thinking human being would ever consider such a thing. That is not conducive to cultivating open dialogue. Remember the principle of Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. There's just a principle in the Proverbs of guarding our responses. Guarding our responses. Instead, let, let your children talk. Let your teenager talk. Listen to them. Respectfully express their opinions about faces covered with tattoos and pink and purple spiked hairdos. And then go into convulsions after you've listened. I'm just kidding. You can laugh a little bit and make me feel better. Ask them questions that don't condemn them or make them feel stupid. You're engaging with them. You're getting on their level. By the way, parents, you can and you must hold to your personal convictions and require your children to, as long as they're living in your home, to live under your house rules, as we would call them. But you should do so with kindness and without being disrespectful to your kids. Listen to Proverbs 16, 21. The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. 
want our speech to be sweet. Proverbs 16, 23, the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. The red zone, friends, is a time to treat your kids like you would one of your peers. By that I mean if you wouldn't jump in with a correction or rebuke of a friend, don't do so with your teen. Do more listening. Wait for the right moment to share what you think Scripture would say and apply to what they've shared. And seek to be as gentle and kind and respectful of their opinions as you would be with one of your friends. Another piece of advice here under this point. Parents, allow your young adults to develop their own convictions. And this is particularly hard for some of us. Our kids will inevitably do so anyway, right? So you might as well start early giving them the freedom to think differently than you do while they are still living at home and you still have input into their lives. Marcia Somerville writes this. It's a quote on the sheet you have there. She writes, What we need to face is the bold truth that in the end we will have to let them go and that they will in that day choose their own way. You did it. Why should your sons and daughters be different? Though they may in the process form different convictions than we ourselves have adopted, if we give them room to differ and express their opinions, it is far more likely that they will reach toward us for guidance than run away. End quote. I like that. I think that's good advice to us as parents. Our children will not likely think and develop the identical convictions we have in life. Another parental warning here. Not every hill is worth dying on with our kids. There are many wisdom issues in the Christian life, are there not? Not everything is black and white. Now, some of you may say, oh, I thought everything was black and white. We'll, we'll talk about that later. Not everything is black and white. Not everything is a primary issue. There are secondary issues in the Christian life that we can agree to disagree on and still get along quite nicely. And as parents, we must be humble enough to admit that our application of biblical principles may not apply to every other Christian. Our children may not embrace every conviction and application of Scripture that we do, and that is okay. We must keep the main thing, the main thing in our parenting, and the main thing is the gospel, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Those are the things we cannot budge on. There must be agreement on unless we don't want to be inside the faith. But there's a plethora of things that are outside the main thing. Again, while living in our homes, they should be required to live according to our house rules, but, they, but we shouldn't insist that they think just like we do on every minute issue. We must discern between biblical mandates and personal convictions and preferences and help our kids to do the same. Just one simple example here of where it's a personal conviction and a standard. 
for Maureen and I, when the kids are growing up, we had certain music standards, okay, that we held to. And we, we raised the, some musicians in our family. They're gifted. And uh, Maureen plays the piano. I play the radio. She plays the piano. Um, and so there's, there's, there's musical interests there. And just admittedly, good old Pastor Steve's pretty conservative in his musical thing. So I'm thinking, of course, all my six kids are going to grow up with just the same standards. Not, you know, I'm finding out that they're listening, you know, they get in the teen years and they're like, you listen to what? You know, and back to my convulsions and stuff. It's like, no, Steve, t- take the football-sized humble pill, put it down, and go, it's okay. Chill out, dude. I mean, it's a musical preference. It's a difference. They didn't, they didn't jettison the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, they didn't give up the gospel. They, they like different music than you. Everybody relax, um, starting with that. Um, so that's just an example. Life unfolds. By the way, they're not way out there. I mean, actually, you'd laugh at me if you think some of the things I struggle with. But anyway, um, our parenting goal is articulated in Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1. I like this. Paul's prayer, Philippians 1. And this I pray that your love may still abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Now, there's uh, my interpretation of that. My, my uh, uh, translation would be, you're going to have to choose between good, better, and best. And may God give you discernment. And you know what? He may lead us in discernment in different ways and what is good, better, and best. Verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. By the way, remember that your kids have not set their convictions and life philosophy in stone when they are 16 or 19 or 21. So don't panic if they say or believe things that you think are crazy, right? I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of us here have positions and convictions that have changed over the years? Some of mine have. I've actually loosened up on my music. You'd be proud of me. <laughs> oh, goodness. So allow your kids the freedom to do the same. This is good. Friends, trust God to do his work, to do his will in their lives in the years and decades to come. Remember, our young ones are just starting out life. They will not be a finished product when they leave our home. They won't have everything dialed when they turn 20 or 21. I don't have everything dialed when I'm 58. Let's grant them some bucket loads of grace in those things. All right, so evangelize and disciple and continue to engage them regularly. Let's look at number three and we'll take a break. Release them slowly. Release them slowly the day is coming when our kids will walk out of our house for the last time and into a world to live on their own and the red zone is a season of preparation for that day our goal is for them to be in the world but not of the world our goal is for them to be true salt and light for jesus christ Our goal for them is to be an active witness of the gospel, bold and courageous and loving and sharing their their faith with their lives and with their words. 
our preparation for their ultimate departure must include a careful, long, slow process of letting go. It should begin long before they leave our nests. Releasing our kids is a long process, not a sudden event. This, in my church, which, which tends to lean towards some pretty conservative parenting stuff going on, and I'm trying to always balance everybody because, of course, I'm the perfect example of balance, right? Um, that's a joke, too. Um, but I have some parents, we've seen this, and it breaks our hearts. They're very protective. They want to, you know, guide, put fences around their kids, even through the teen years. And then the kids are getting older, 18, 19, they're going off to college, and all of a sudden, whew, throw them out in the world. Because they thought releasing was an event. It's not. It's a long process. It starts when they're 10, 11, 12, 13. Releasing them slowly into the world. I'm not going to state specific ages when kids should be allowed to do certain things or what things they should and shouldn't be allowed to do. Every child, every family is unique, and there are numerous variables for every parent to prayerfully weigh before the Lord. But my point is simply this. Parenting is one long process of letting go of our kids. We must let out the rope slowly over many years in order to equip them to be wise and responsible in living for the Lord in this world. I do not personally subscribe to the parenting philosophy that says a five-year-old or an eight-year-old needs to be salt and light in the world before, they, before I should na naively put them in an ungodly environment so that they can be a good testimony to ungodly kids and adults. Parents, yes, we do have a call to protect our little ones from ungodliness. However, the call to protect them can be taken way too far and go on for way too long. And some well-meaning parents make the mistake of overprotecting their teenagers. This is Steve's opinion here, I'm just saying. And I've seen the devastation of it. Maybe some of you have seen it too. Now, there's many reasons why parents can be overly protective. Fear of what might happen to them. They could actually fail. They could go out and make a mistake. They could, they could fall into some sin or control. Some parents are just control freaks. The sense of security of always having them within arm's reach. Total surveillance. I've got control, which is a myth, but I think I've got control. Pride. I don't want to let go. Well, the kids can make me look bad. I let them go and they do something. And then the church finds out. Oh, Lack of trust. I don't know if I can trust God. I don't know if I can trust my kids. Lots of reasons. Being a fearful, controlling, suffocating, untrusting, overprotective parent is one way that we provoke our children to wrath. The Bible says to parents, twice to, da to dads, do not provoke your children to anger. You want to provoke them to anger? Live like that kind of parent. actually stunt their ability to live for Jesus on their own. We need to trust the power of the gospel and the grace of God and the Holy Spirit to enable our children, apart from us, to stand firm in the world. If our children have hearts that have truly been born again, then the, deci the decisive battle has been fought and won. 
1 John 5, 4, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 1 John 3, 9, No one who is born of God practices sin because the seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That is, we won't live in a perpetual sin without repenting. 1 John 4, 4, For you are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than who is in the world. What's the point? The point is this. Genuine conversion is a very powerful thing. Far more powerful than my parental surveillance and ultimate control and suffocating my kids and not trusting them or not allowing them to fail. Oh, I just want to be perfect. Good. I don't want anybody in the church to know my kid did that. No. Fear of man. Oh, beware, parent. I say that compassionately because Steve falls to that stuff. I did. Back in the old days, I did. I'm trying to protect you from some of this. William Farley on your notes says this. Effective parents equip their children to overcome the world. Not by changing and controlling their environment, things external to their children, but by going after their children's hearts. We change their hearts by teaching the gospel, modeling the gospel, and centering our homes on the gospel. The gospel rightly understood and modeled makes Christianity attractive. Effective parents make the gospel so attractive that the world cannot get a foothold in their children's hearts, end quote. So yes, our kids may succumb to worldliness and temptation at times, just like you and I do, if we're honest. But that's not the end of the world. Failure is actually part of growing in sanctification. We must trust God's promise to keep his own children. John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will be able to snatch them out of their hands, my hand. Our kids will fail in life. Parents, they will. We need to allow them to fail. Now, when they're in our nest. And then teach them very graciously. Teach them how to deal with their sin. How to teach them to deal with failure biblically. How much better to walk through it with them while they are still with us in our home. When they sin at, at home or away from home, we should teach them how to apply the gospel to their failure. Teach them how to clearly confess their sin. How to seek forgiveness. Teach them about humble repentance, taking responsibility, making restitution, behaving and accepting, and accepting, or excuse me, believing and accepting God's forgiveness and cleansing, bringing forth fruit of repentance. Yes, yeah, so if we as parents, we fail, so we should not expect our kids to be perfect, nor should we be shocked or come unglued by their sin. Just seeing this with children, you know, this is just kills me with kids, and, and, and it kills me because I've done it. <laughs> I can't believe you did. I can't believe. Really, Steve? Boy, if that 
was a pharisaical. Some of the stuff I'd say that's like, boy, when I was a kid, I did the same thing. Can't believe you did it. They'll start believing it. They're, they're in process. Bob Schultz, quote on your outline there, I love this. God anticipates our falls, and he plans our recoveries. Failures don't shock him. He doesn't give up on a man when he falls, and neither should we. The first two chapters of the Bible describe the creation of the world and the creation of man. The third chapter is man's fall. The rest of the book <laughs> is instruction on how to get up again. I love that. If you think I'm going light on sin, you don't know Steve Balvance. Okay, we're not going light on sin. But I'm acknowledging that in my house, everyone was a sinner, starting with dear old dad. And all of us were in need of grace regularly. And so our children should breathe gospel air of grace and forgiveness in our homes. We're not winking at sin. We call sin, sin, and we deal with it. But we deal with it as one sinner to another. One beggar telling another beggar where to find the bread. The, the foot of the cross is level for dad, mom, and all the siblings. Marcia Somerville writes a good advice. I do not believe in a total hands-off approach. We need to walk with our teens closely every day of their lives and daily set before them our example of a vibrant, growing, authentic, but not perfect Christian. What I'm getting at is something deeper and mere, than mere biblical instruction. I'm addressing the change in your relationship with your son or daughter during this season from one of benign dictator to one of fellow pilgrim on the road to the celestial city. That's a reference to Pilgrim's Progress. You're familiar with that. So yes, our kids aren't the only sinners in the house. We all need grace, and we all need a Savior. So one last word, and we'll take a five-minute break, and then we'll end with ten minutes. A little bit of better clock management tonight. Not much better, but a little better. Okay. Letting out the rope. I, I use that imagery. Letting out the rope with our kids slowly is not letting go entirely. It's letting it out. Nor is it being foolish or naive. Again, releasing our children, granting freedoms to them is a slow process over years. It's not a single event. Remember, we are engaging and debriefing with them regularly. There may be times that you have to pull the rope back in a little bit. An unwise decision on our part is not irreversible. Good leaders make good second decisions. It's a good principle in all leadership. Don't always get the best decision the first time. Good leaders, parents, are humble and say, that wasn't a good decision. We're going to make a better second decision. So may God give us the wisdom of Solomon to wisely execute the process of letting go of our children and preparing them to live lives that are pleasing to God in a fallen world. Father, I pray you would help these three strategies to sink into our hearts for whatever nuggets would be helpful. And bless us now as we take a little break and we finish off, Lord. Do your work in our hearts 
that we might do your work for our children in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's take five minutes and we'll come back together for follow-up for 10. Drink and remember He drank that cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this bread of life. Have we drink of this sacrifice?
hearts of sinful men. All right. Uh, that was a quick five minutes, I know. Can we please uh, take our place and we'll, we'll wrap things up quickly? All right. So as we conclude here, we've got these, what I call strategies for parenting in the red zone, evangelize and disciple them, continually engage them regularly, release them slowly, these last three very quickly, but just as important as the other three. Strategy number four is love them unconditionally. I don't, this point, maybe along with some of these other ones, could, would well use an entire message to love our children unconditionally. I think our, our children need to understand that they are loved because they're our children, not because of their performance. Performance-based love is poison in a family. The red zone is a great opportunity to extend unconditional love to your children in the same way that God does for you. We promise to love our children no matter what. This is something my children heard a hundred, more than a hundred times over the course of their teen years and even earlier. No matter what you do, no matter what course your life takes, I may be grieved, mom may be grieved, but we will forever love you. We won't agree with your sin. We won't wink at it but we will love you and speak the truth to you and we will be here for you. Our kids should have drilled into them our unconditional love. We should model our love for our children after the prodigal father. I love that in Luke 15, the we call the prodigal son parable, but it's really... I think it's about the father more than it is about the son. The amazing love of that father for his fallen son. Uh, there's a chorus we sing in our church, and perhaps you sing it here. It's entitled Mercies Anew. And it, one of the stanza goes like this When I've fallen and strayed, there were mercies anew. For you sought me in love, and my heart you pursued. In the face of my sin, Lord, you never withdrew. So I sing of your mercies anew. What a great theme for us as parents. The bottom line is for us is to treat our children like God treats us. And how is that? Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Goes through a whole list of things. Nothing, including our own sin separate us from the love of Christ. Again, we're not talking about not dealing with sin. We're not talking about agreeing with sin and ignoring it and minimizing it. Not at all. True love deals with sin in a loving, truthful manner. 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Hope your children understand how much you love them.
Strategy number five, trust God implicitly. We must parent by faith, not by sight. We must place our hope in God and not in them. For some parents, the teen years can become disheartening and downright scary. We may have a son or daughter who is not saved or is showing signs of drifting away from the Lord. These are times that try the soul, the dark night of the soul, as the Puritans would call it. Marcia Somerville again, during the teen years, we come face to face with our powerlessness to move hearts. We must turn to our Savior, grow in trust in his finished work, and bring our requests to the Father who is always wise, good, and loving. The antidote to fear is to meditate on the character of God, his compassion, sovereignty, power, and love. God who made your son or daughter loves him or her far more than you do. He alone has the power to save. In the final analysis, your only role is to trust him. End quote. As Spurgeon so famously said, when we cannot trace God's hand, we must learn to trust his heart. God's timing and ways are often different from ours. We must learn to trust and praise him in the dark times. Just a quick little anecdotal part of that. Um, one of our sons was in his mid-teen years, 16, 17 years old, and that he made it very clear to us, which we were grateful. He told us that he didn't love Jesus and didn't want to follow him and that upon his 18th birthday, he would be moving out. Um, and uh, that was hard. That was excruciating for us as parents. We had many uh, tearful nights and uh, discussions with him and uh, cry ourselves to sleep. Um, now, it doesn't always work this way, but we just poured out our hearts to God in any opportunities we had to express our love for him and, and uh, truth to him we did. We took without, I trust, overdoing it. But anyway, just before his 18th birthday, he got saved. And quite apart from anything we did, it just all of a sudden, we, we, we saw changes in his life. And one day I just took him aside and said, Zachary, I said, what, I don't know what's happened to you. I don't, it seems like something's happened in your heart, he said, Dad, I didn't want to really say anything because I don't want to build up your expectations, but I realize I need Jesus. And, uh, man, you, I mean, take all my, my house, my, my debt, take everything I have, uh, give me that gift. Oh, man. And I know that some of you don't have that experience, and I'm, I'm sorry, but I do know a little bit of the heartache of a lost son who just told us straight up, I don't love Jesus, and I want to do my own thing on my 18th birthday. I'll be out of here. But you just stay in the game. You just stay in the game. And in this case, God was just overwhelmingly merciful, and he's just walking strong with the Lord and uh, quite a delight to our hearts. And finally giving us a daughter or granddaughter, so that's good. Um, <laughs> lastly, and most importantly, and I'll say that tritely, lastly and most importantly strategy, pray for your kids fervently. Pray for them fervently. 
that is the ultimate key to effectively implementing and persevering in everything we're saying tonight. Pray unceasingly for your children and pray for yourself. God loves it when we cry out to him in utter dependence. We cannot do anything ultimately to change a heart, right? Parenting is ultimately God's work. It's not ours. It's like evangelism. Ultimately, God is in charge of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He works through means. He works through the, the witnesser, the evangelist. But God is the one that causes growth, causes salvation, causes sanctification. It's true of parenting. We are utterly powerless in the end. So we cry out to God to do a work that only he can do. And I run across this in parenting. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's a hard admission, but parents that are wrestling, how much are you praying? How much are you praying? You're strategizing, you're doing good things, you're reading good materials, you're doing a lot of good parenting things. But the most important thing is you're calling out to God. And this is another good reason why it's good to study the depravity of man and understand the human heart. Because when you understand the human heart from the Bible, you pray. Because you recognize only God can change that. No parent, the best parent in the world can't change a human heart. Can't change a child's heart. Only God does that. Only God. And it's pretty cool too because when, a ch like when Zachary got saved, I'm not touching one drop of glory or credit for that thing. Not lest the lightning like we had last night come and strike me down. God did that. God did that. So pray. Spurgeon said, even as the moon influences the tides of the sea, even so prayer influences the tides of godliness. So we end right now. And you're saying, at the bottom of the outline, I said, what should I do if I have been negligent and parenting in the red zone? You say, I've failed, Steve. I've, I, you're sharing this stuff, and I'm, I've not done it. Well, you know, you know what to do, right? You know the gospel drill. Confess your sin before the Lord and repent before him and your family. And by the way, there's not a parent in here and certainly not the speaker that hasn't failed numerous times in all of this. How many times, babe, did we circle, we call it circle in the wagons. Okay, kids, they're in the living room, family time. Dad's going to confess again. He's dropped the ball. Didn't, haven't been consistent. Please forgive me, kids. This is what I've done that's wrong. I want to I repent before God and you. I need God's forgiveness, and he's given it to me. I would ask for your forgiveness, and here's why I want to re, reboot. I want to recalibrate. I need your help. Would you put up with Dad? He's, he's just still learning to be a dad. That's the drill, humble before God, humble before then, confessing sin, receiving forgiveness, and power to change. God's opposed to the proud, he gives grace to humble the waterfall, you can almost feel the waterfall of grace come, okay, let's reboot, let's go at this again. That's what you do. And would I encourage you not to spend one hour or one day wallowing in your past failure or guilt? Christians do this all the time. They wallow in their, their sin, their guilt. It's a waste of time. 
It doesn't honor God. It's a waste of emotional energy. It's a tool of the devil to sidetrack us, the accuser of the brethren. Hey, we're guilty. Let's charge. We have a Savior who forgives us free and clear, erases the sin, says you're forgiven. Here's grace to do better the next time. Don't wallow in your sin. Don't allow the devil to have one moment of cackling and enjoying you wallowing in your sin. We have an amazing Savior who forgives over and over and over us as parents and and our children as well. It's never too late. It's never too late to begin doing what God has called you to do. You say, I haven't been doing that, Steve. It's never too late to evangelize and disciple him. It's not too late. They're in your nest. It's not too late. Engage them regularly. Release them slowly. Love them unconditionally. Trust God implicitly and pray for them fervently. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for our time together over these days. Specifically tonight, I pray that you would invigorate our hearts as dads and moms, whatever the season of parenting we're in, to embrace your calling. Thank you for your grace to forgive us when we've failed multiple times. Thank you, you don't hold it over our heads and you certainly don't want us wallowing in our regrets and guilt, but you freely forgive us and restore us and empower us for future obedience. And I pray that would be the testimony of us tonight. Lord, that we'd be following hard after you as moms and dads and doing what you've called us to do in utter dependence upon you. Thank you, Lord, that it is your work. Thank you for the privilege of being um, your ambassadors in our lives of our children, that you can use us as your means. But all the glory belongs to you, God, if anything, if anything good comes in the life of our children, we will give you all the praise you're due. Thank you for my friends here tonight. Help us to enjoy fellowship now and to depart in peace and trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.